Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to episode 61 of Trundlebed Tales. And tonight's episode, we are doing sort of a combination of our normal kind of informational uh, episode of the month and also one of our travel times episodes because I'm going to start out giving you some background and history on Herbert Hoover and his connections to Rose Wilder Lane and Laura Ingalls Wilder, why they're even is a uh, presidential library in West Branch, Iowa. And I'm going to kind of start talking off or start off talking about that. A little later at the end of, of well, the second half of the episode really, I'm going to kind of take the travel point of view and tell you a little bit about what you're going to find in West Branch today. And um I hope that you'll find each part equally interesting. And I was kind of taking a stab at the hour, so if we end up running out of material, which I I don't think we will, but if we do end up running out of uh, material, we may end up uh, calling this one just a little short because it is sort of a different format, and I'm not really entirely sure how much it's going to take, uh, how much time it's going to take. But before we can get involved in any of that, I think it's time for a little housekeeping. which is, among other things, a reminder that if you have a question or a comment or want to find something out, you can always call in at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. That's one 877 Now, those numbers are only good while we're actually live on the air, but they're the same every episode, so if you uh, hear one coming up and you're interested in it, uh, know you can call in. You can also stream live, both on your computer, and listen through the phone if you're going to be out and about and you want to listen to it. Uh, We also have gone ahead and opened the chat room, so if you have any comments, feel free to chat into there. And uh, you can also catch these episodes later, both through streaming through this website, the Blog Talk Radio one, and uh, also through iTunes. If you're wondering which episodes are available, I think probably the easiest way to see them is to go either to my website or my blog and find a listing of the episodes there with a a little description and the direct link into the streamed archive. If you want to get them on iTunes to download them and take them with you, there's also a link on the the podcast page of both the website and the blog. Uh, I want to make sure that I point out that one of the uh, posts that I just recently did, I was, because I've been going down through our highest rated posts, updating and then re-blogging them. 
And uh, this one was about Laura's birthday party in 2013, which you can listen to the stream of. Now, uh, I'm going to let everybody know that there's going to be one of those birthday parties again this year in 2015. Uh, I don't have it set up yet, and I'm not exactly sure on the time, but I will give people plenty of time to know because what I want you to do again is to call in and ask what, or, well, ask any questions that you might have about Laura that you want to know about. Tell us your Laura story, um, something that means a lot to you, why you like Laura, how you got into Laura, how you, uh, your favorite Laura experience, which could be something like going to one of the home sites. It could be tracking down a bullet mold or whatever for your collection. It could be flashing your replica Laura Ingalls Wilder engagement ring, which my niece discovered mine today and was very excited about. So all that is going to be going on on February 7th. And I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to try on the 13th to do uh, something similar about Omanzo. I got a request for this last year. And I'm not entirely sure if it's going to work. Um, and I'm not exactly sure on the time on that one. But as of right now, check back later for more details. I'm planning to do a Almanza Wilder's birthday on February 13th in 2015. As far as episodes for the rest of the year, which we're quickly running out of, there's going to be one more where we're going to be uh, kind of recapping what went on in Laura Fandom in 2014. And then sometime in January, it isn't going to be right at the the fr first part of the month uh, because I've got to have some time to do little digging. But in January, we'll be doing a look ahead. And last year, I was able to pull enough uh, information from various sources that I could get a pretty good selection of Laura event dates right at the beginning of the year. It just worked slick as anything. And I'm not going to count on getting that again this year, but hopefully we will at least get enough so that we can look ahead. But that's going to be probably towards the middle of the month. And then we're going to be hopefully getting beakers back on track. And that is my New Year's resolution to try and get back in my pattern of having the update at the beginning of the month, the um, a half hour interview well a half hour show of me talking about some subject a half hour travel episode and an hour long interview with somebody i've got some people uh that are have said they're going to do it so i've got to get the questions together and then we're ready to go and i think that is far than enough housekeeping probably more than you wanted to know so let's go ahead and get into the body of the episode Now, again, this is episode 61, and we are talking about Herbert Hoover in West Branch, Iowa. Now, I was very fortunate to grow up in Johnson County, which is right next door to Cedar County, which is where West Branch is. So I have had a chance to go there far more often than I would if I was at basically living pretty much anywhere else. But it is a lovely site, and I do recommend you visit if you possibly can. Now, 
West Branch is part of a Quaker community. Iowa uh, had all sorts of different, both ethnic groups and religion-based groups, come in to settle it. There were at least two, well, I think, yeah, at least two full-fledged utopia colonies in Iowa and a fairly large Quaker population. We have um, also today a fairly large Amish population and various things like that. And one of the places that the Quakers lived was around West Branch, Iowa. And it is, it was sort of a bustling little town. It uh, happened to have the good fortune of being right along Interstate 80, uh, which is uh, one of the main east-west arteries of the nation now. So that was a definite push up. And also, it happened to be the birthplace of Herbert uh, Hoover, which uh, who is was um, a great mining engineer. He was someone who had taken the helm of dealing with national emergencies. He headed up, for example, the response to the Mississippi River flood of 1927 and um, paid for all the relief efforts. Um, not that everything about it was perfect, but he paid for all the relief efforts through private uh, contributions. There wasn't any government money. And... I think really saved an awful lot of lives, then went on to do something similar with the people during World War One um, who really he saved so many children from starving i I don't think people have any any idea how much how many how many people he helped during World War one and he ended up from that experience, deciding he wasn't going to go back into mining, he was going to go on public service. So he'd done several other things like that. He became the Secretary of Commerce and was such an active person in reaching out and trying to get the government to do good in ways that private enterprises and private companies couldn't, uh, mostly through standardization, which was, I could talk a hell half hour just on on what he did for standardization because it really, this country owes him such a debt just for that. But anyway, uh, he was called the Secretary of Commerce and the Undersecretary of everything else. So he was in the cabinet there uh, basically a decade and then eventually ran for President of the United States. He was elected by a large majority but had the misfortune of being elected the tail end of a boom year. And I could also go on for a half hour about what happened to him there, at least maybe a whole hour. But I'm going to skip that for right now because I want to get back to West Branch. So he became president. He served a single term. Uh, he was voted out of office and then uh, spent a lot of time working towards uh, well, peace initiatives through historical initiatives to help save things and uh, study information. He wrote quite a few historical books. Uh, he served on two different government committees to try and streamline government and reduce waste. 
most of the suggestions from his first committee were accepted and did a lot of good. Most of his suggestions from his second committee were completely ignored uh, and eventually ended up being basically sort of an elder statesman. He was sort of, well, for people who are looking for a recent comparison, is sort of the Jimmy Carter of his day, even though they were from opposite political parties and had many way different different beliefs. But he ended up in that sort of service organization. So that's why people know about Herbert Hoover. And he was born in West Branch in 1874. And he was born either on August 10th or on August 11th. Nobody's sure because he was born somewhere over the night and nobody looked at the clock. So you'll find some things that say August 10th and some things that say August 11th. And no one really knows sure. They uh, So people can basically take their choice. In West Branch today is a small house. It's painted white. It may or may not have been painted white at the time he lived there. There's... Uh, a pretty good argument that it was unpainted during that time. Uh, he lived there with his mother and his father, his older brother, and his younger sister. And they lived in that house. The family lived in that house from 1871 to 1879. At that time, uh, they had sold a little house, and his father, Jesse Hoover, had been a blacksmith in the town, and instead had started working this, this store, which was a larger enterprise. He was doing better. They uh, moved into a house about a block or so down the street, two stories, a much nicer house that sadly has since been torn down. That's why the story in West Branch mostly focuses on this little birthplace cottage where he was born. Well, a year after all that happened, after they left the little house, they moved into the bigger house, they sold the blacksmith, they opened the larger larger store, Jesse dies in 1880. The family kind of continues on. Hoover's mother, Hulda, was a um, minister in uh, Quaker terms, which, again, maybe sometime I will, will take an attempt to explain, but basically... It meant that she was somebody who was very respected within the church community and traveled around to different meetings and eventually, in doing so, one time got sick. And she also passed away in 1884, leaving the three children orphans. They were passed around through various relatives and eventually uh, Hoover ends up out in Oregon with an uncle who believes in the importance of education. He ends up being in the, about the first class at Stanford University out in California, paid his own way through, and uh, graduated with a, a mining uh, engineer's degree uh, and got engaged to a, a co-head there, Lou Henry Hoover. And graduated with this big fancy degree and the first job that he could get was, or the only job he could get at first was working actually in the mind mining but eventually he 
slowly worked his way up. He became known as the Doctor of Sick Minds. And there I was going back more on Hoover biography again. So anyway, we're going to get back to West Branch. So in uh, 1880, they had moved into this house, and by 1884, the children are scattered. And really, the connection to West Branch sort of ends within a couple years there. But there are still quite a few family members around town. Now, the little house, as I mentioned, was on the main street through West Branch. It's The main street has since moved over a little bit, but it was the Downey Road uh, because it led to the town of Downey. It was the main street, and it faced this main street. But it was a very little teeny tiny house. And so the people who bought it eventually took the house, jacked it up, rotated it 90 degrees and moved it back about 10 feet or so in order to build a two-story addition on the front. Then they used the original house as um, sort of the behind end of the house. Sort of, um, it, it sort of teed into the, the addition. And that was where how the house stood for many years. All the while that Hoover was beginning to get his natu- national reputation, uh, the house was owned by a woman who really was quite industrious. And she decided that she could make something over the fact that her house contained this birthplace cottage. So what she decided to do was to open a hot dog stand in her house and that people could tour Hoover's birthplace cottage if they bought a hot dog. If it hadn't been for that, I'm not exactly sure things would have gotten preserved in West Branch because it was sort of being appalled at this idea that the house that he was born was being advertised as a hot dog stand that I think kind of sprung people into action. Buy the house from the woman to basically shut down the hot dog stand, Uh, but she didn't want to sell. She was making a good living. She thought it was a good thing to do, but eventually uh, she passes on and her children are willing to sell. So they sell the house to the the Hoover family and their representatives in 1935. Then they had this house, this little this house with the two-story addition on the front sitting on the main street in West Branch, Iowa, and they had no idea what to do with it. They didn't want it to be used like it had been before, so they wanted to maintain control, but you just kind of hate to let it sit there. So uh, vocal boosters and the family decide that they're going to restore it. So there had been, as I mentioned, this edition that dated from 1890, and you will see many early images that have uh, that are marked the birthplace cottage that show this edition in the front, including the Grant Wood painting of the Hoover birthplace. And if you want a good example of what it looked like before they started restoring it, 
that will show you. But they they tore down uh, this 1890s edition. They moved the the little birthplace cottage forward again 10 feet, rotated it back the 90 degrees, and so it looked basically how it would have looked when Hoover lived there. As I said, there's some arguments about if it was uh, painted white. It's been white most of its existence as a museum. But was that really right? Should it have been shown as unpainted? Did the brown paint that it had for a while be a better reflection of what it looked like at the time? There's a whole argument about this. And there's also an argument about the inside. Would they have had wallpaper? Would it have been painted inside? All sorts of different things. But for the most part, using the memories of all three children and other people who would have been familiar with the inside of the house, they have done their best to restore what the house looked like. So the next obvious step was how the family made their money, which was the blacksmith shop. Uh, Hoover's father, Jesse Hoover, was a blacksmith. But there is not one image of that blacksmith shop to go on. They basically decided that they would be able to put together roughly a replica of what a typical blacksmith shop at that time would have looked like. But because it was only going to be sort of a typical representation, instead of building it right where the original shop was, on the, that main street by the birthplace cottage, they put it back behind where you'll still see the replica today. And they didn't want it overshadowing the birthplace because it is a much larger building. And it was going to be inaccurate, basically, whatever they did, because nobody had any idea what it really looked like. So they didn't want to have it right out in front. They thought they should have one, and they still do, and they still have active blacksmithing going on that you can see if you visit the park. But the idea was that they would um, sort of keep it off to the side a little bit, which actually worked out very well because the house that was over when all this restoration work started, over the site of the um, blacksmith shop, hadn't been built with a proper foundation. It was basically one of those floater foundations that were just basically on the surface. So archaeologists were actually able to come in later and do a dig there and to determine quite a few things about how the blacksmith shop really was from doing the dig, but they didn't um, they didn't feel like there was a lot of benefit to keeping it exposed. So they did remove some artifacts, they mapped everything, and then they filled it up again. So you'll just see a green space now if you go out there. But they have actually done a dig, and you can read the archaeological report on it if you want. It's really pretty interesting. So they have, by 1954, had this house right on the main street of town. They have a uh, replica of the blacksmith shop, and it's just sort of sitting there. You, the main highway into town, people were just you know, driving by in the cars. There really wasn't a parking space. There really wasn't 
anything much in the in the way of the park, but they uh, decided eventually to make it a national historic site. And with that, they started buying up land to expand the park so it wouldn't just be this little birthplace on the main street of town. They actually moved the main street of town, well, depending on where you are, basically a full block uh, further to the east and made the what had been the main street of town to look more historic, like an, an, a dirt road that might have been through there. In addition to the blacksmith shop, they also discovered that their meeting house, the original Quaker meeting house, was still up standing in downtown well, or West Branch, but it was currently being used as a garage. They were able to rescue that building and bring it down and restore it and put it, not in its original location, but the original Quaker meeting house is um, just a little bit to the left of where the Hoover second house would have stood now. So they did that because, well, they had the original building and were able to find it, and also because the Quaker religion really was very important to the Hoovers. So they did that. Then they were looking around, and they found that there was a one-room school still around in the area that Hoover had attended. Now, not as a one-room school. The one-room school had been moved over and attached to a larger building and was being repurposed as a primary school that was just, you know, like a being treated basically by like another classroom in this larger school. So when Hoover attended, it really wasn't a one-room school anymore, though it had been built for that purpose. But they were able to get the building, it's the original building, to move it out on the grounds, again, not in its original location and not in the location it was when Hoover used it, but it is an original one-room school. It's been restored to look like a one-room school, and Hoover did attend school in this building. The second Hoover house, the Hoover store, were already gone. There's been talk from time to time about maybe they should look at doing something to you know, rebuild them or at least give people a better idea of what they looked like and where they were located. But it really, nothing has really happened. Now, as Part of the National Park Service element of it, I had talked about that they had moved the, the main street and made it look old-fashioned. They did a little bit more than that. They wanted to make sure that people got the feeling that this town was, um, this house was in a town during the late 19th century. So there are actually two uh, two city streets that have been restored to buildings that would have been around during the time that Hoover lived in the little birthplace. You can walk on up the street for a full city block past the birthplace. You can walk down past the blacksmith shop, hang a right, and do another block. And those are all buildings that were there at the time. They were mostly residential houses then, and for the most part, they are residential houses now where the rangers uh, stay 
but some of them are offices and some of them are used for other purposes. The, um, there is one exception to that. There is a beautiful little gem of a house to the right of where the, the blacksmith shop was originally. And it was a house that was built by a carpenter as a present to his wife. And it is such a beautiful house, so nicely done, that they just didn't have the heart to tear it down and decided against moving it. So that one is used as uh, an office. That's one of the, the places where they uh, have people working on that. They also have, besides restoring these two streets, they have a prairie of 81 acres, which has a handicap accessible path along its edge so they can, you can at least get an idea of what the prairie looks like. They have paths, a couple of different paths that change depending on the year that uh, they do prairie walks on. You can look on its stuff. Uh, more recently, they found a description by Hoover saying that if there was going to be something to him in West Branch, one of the things he'd really like to see are nut trees. Because as a boy, he loved to go and find and pick nuts. And so they took a little corner of the prairie and planted nut trees in there. And, oh gosh, I'd have to look up the year, but they've been, been growing along. And so if you go up around the actual grave site portion, you can see uh, the nut trees that they're growing up there. You also talk a lot about the stream that um, town and through the um, site because there there's often some concern on what they should do as far as maintaining this stream. Is this a stream that they should let continue to meander where it is or if they should do something to try and help um, support it in the path it has now. So it's something that you hear them talking about sometimes. There's also a virtual tour that you can look up online that will show you all the different places um, around this area. And if you're just coming into a West Branch, you should know that there are really three different Hoover organizations. So you come in the main street, and the birthplace cottage is part of, and all these things I've been talking about so far, is part of the National Historic Site. It's a National Historic Park. If you go down the street, past the entrance to the Presidential Library, which we'll in a minute, the uh, historic, site, headquarters, and visitor center is where you'll start before doing anything on the ground. And it is a brick federal building for for West Branch. It's catty-cornered from the town office, and that's where you start in the visitor center. And I just wanted to mention it briefly, uh, that it is also in the same building as the West Branch post office. And I just wanted to mention it because the Christmas card that I just sent this last month to the Hoover Historic Site was mailed back to me with a little note. They couldn't deliver the letter 
even though they were in the same building. <laughs> I still haven't gotten overlap. Oh, and the other thing that I always like to point out to people, the other big thing that, that's on the ground, is the Hoover Grape. And the very nice thing they have done with it is if you step out onto the back porch of the birthplace cottage, you can look up to the top of the hill and you can see the grave. And if you go up and stand by the grave and look back, you can see the birthplace cottage and where it all started to where it ended. And it just, it really gives you a chill. I just love that part. Well, that gets us over Hoover Organization in town, which is the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. Now, they had already been working in West Branch with all of this house renovation things that I've been talking about. And there came an opportunity to start a presidential library. Now, this is a little different experience than what people, presidents today have with the Presidential Library. Because basically what happens now is they back the trucks up to the back of the White House, load the papers that belong to the federal government up on the trucks, and drive them either to storage or to the completed Presidential Library if it's ready to go. That isn't what happened with Hoover or basically any president before that. Uh, I recently talked about going to the Kepler um, Museum earlier this year and seeing an order Abraham Lincoln had signed about uh, about Fort Sumner in this private collection. And that's because a lot of the papers of presidents before uh, this time were considered their private property. There was a lot of gray area there about who owned what that really was only clearly defined in the 20th century and most of it only truly clearly defined in the late 20th century, the last quarter or so. But um, the idea of a presidential library, which is basically more of an archive than a library, it houses the presidential papers, it houses presidential artifacts. It has a display area to show um, usually a permanent exhibit and any more, usually a temporary exhibit, at least one that uh, basically tells you how great the president is in the permanent exhibit and then different things coming in and rotating through in the temporary which isn't what most people picture when they think library, but that's what it is. Now, the part that most people see is just that front display area, but most presidential libraries have a huge area behind that, not only as a production area for the displays, but also for maintaining papers. And the Hoover Library is a fairly small presidential library, and still the amount of papers they have, it is just, amazing to walk through the aisles and see that many boxes of papers that they are responsible for preserving. So that's what we're talking about when we say presidential library. And the first presidential library 
actually came because of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He had looked at the National Archives, and he wanted to preserve his legacy, and he decided that that really wasn't where he wanted his papers to go. So he decided that he would construct his own library, his own archives for his papers and material near his home in Hyde Park. And so he built this archive, put his papers into it, and wanted to turn it over to the federal government. Well, the federal government had no idea what to do with it. They didn't have any kind of law. They didn't have anything in place. They didn't know what to do. So they finally had to pass a special law to enable them to accept this presidential library in the system. So, little time goes on. Truman uh, thinks, well, that's basically what you do now. So he wants to start a uh, another a presidential library of his own. And again, Congress was just flummoxed. There wasn't anything on the books to let them do that. So eventually, they passed a law that said that any living president, that is no longer the case, but the initial law was any living president could set up a presidential library. They would have to build the building at their own expense. They would have to organize the materials and get the, the whole thing ready to go, turnkey availability, and then they would turn it over to the federal government. And the federal government then would take uh, control of the facility and keep it running and keep things preserved. Ideally, at that point, the family and the colleagues and supporters of the president would step back and let people who were not so intimately related, related to the story kind of take over and decide what was released, wasn't released, what the exhibits would reflect. That generally doesn't happen until at least uh, the first generation, but that's the ideal. So having passed this law so people could set up their own presidential library, they decided that Hoover would set up his in West Branch. And most presidents at this time, and for uh, quite a while after it, would set up their presidential library either near where they were born or near their boyhood home. So Eisenhower's is in Abilene. Truman's is in Independence. FDR's, as I mentioned, is in Hyde Park. And Hoover decided to put his in West Branch. Now, part of this has to do with the slight argument that he'd had with Stanford, who had been holding some of his papers. And they'd gotten into a bit of a disagreement. Since he'd never deeded the papers over, he could take them back. And that was sort of the start of the presidential library there in West Branch with these papers that he'd taken back. And they had built a building with his input to house them. Now, it was an incredibly small building to, to 
to try and do this and in the first place. Hoover was a big believer that you were not ostentatious at all. They had to talk him into the fact that they wanted to put a cupola on the top of the building. He thought that was too ostentatious, that it should just be this really small building and that would be enough to house the papers, do a little bit of interpretation. That's all he wanted. But um, it was, actually it had been, the building had started as a sort of a private museum in the 1950s, and they decided to expand it to make it this presidential library. There were additions in uh, 71, 74, and 92. The initial dedication to the library was in 62, and Harry Truman attended that dedication service. In 92, the rededication had Ronald Reagan be the speaker. So it has been kind of an important um, notation for presidents and former presidents for quite a while. The Hoover Library was the fourth presidential library. The other three before his were uh, FDR, Truman, and Eisenhower. Now, There and there, the building, as they have added to it over the years, has had a problem because they want to keep it simple, not ostentatious, like Hoover requested. And also, they can't block the view between the birthplace cottage and the gravesite, which means there's sort of a hard line they can't cross. So where the most, so which basically means the most obvious place to expand the museum, they can't expand the museum because it would cut off that view between the birthplace and the grave, which was something Hoover requested himself and that everybody thinks is important. But they have expanded over the years. They like to call themselves the Smithsonian on the Prairie. And I think they really deserve that title. Not only do they have a very nice permanent display on Hoover that is much more even-handed than pretty much any other presidential library I've gone to. It is definitely a raw, raw, raw section. It talks about his accomplishments, but it also talks about people who criticized him and uh, tries to give you a balanced view so that you can feel like you actually kind of uh, learned something and thought about something critically rather than just have uh, the constant cheering. And what they do today is in that exhibit area, they have uh, the temporary exhibit area, they have a Christmas trees exhibit every winter. It's usually... November, December, sometimes into January a little bit. When it when they end it kind of differs year to year. This year it was uh, Shakespeare and Christmas, which if you knew the Shakespeare plays was just fantastic. It was just well done. They even had a mini model of the globe that you could stand on the stage and do your favorite uh, Shakespeare soliloquy. That was great fun. I really liked it. But they have a different theme every year. They've done... Christmas trees around the world. They've done fairy tree, fairy tale trees. They've done 
uh, a tree for each place uh, we lived. They've done holiday movies. They did Laura Ingalls Wilder, which is, of course, the very best one ever. Uh, they did Charles Dickens. They've just done a whole different thing. And so they have a different thing every year. Uh, again, November, December, sometimes a little into January. Then they have their short exhibit of the year, their spring exhibit, which is, you know, basically a, a couple of months. The most uh, heavily attended spring exhibit was when they did a Laura Ingalls Wilder one, and visitation was just huge. It, they just did a great business with that. But they have lots of small, really well-done exhibits. And I should point out that in a lot of places like this, what they get are traveling exhibits, which are things where they were designed by exhibit design companies. And they basically ship them around the country. There's a lot of text, a lot of image, not so much um, artifacts, not so much local connection. And that's something Hoover does extremely well. Almost all of the exhibits it puts on are locally done. So uh, you're seeing an exhibit you can't see anywhere else. This is what it, and they've had to borrow pieces from other collections. They take things out of their own collection. They borrow locally from people. And they try and have that connection. So this is really a unique experience a unique viewpoint, a local tie, but one that anybody who's interested on it can see this exhibit. So I, I just cannot say enough. I mean, it isn't like they can hit a home run every single time, but they get darn close to it. Their exhibits are great. If you ever get a chance, uh, if you're ever traveling along I-80, make sure you stop in West Branch and take a look at their exhibits. So uh, their main uh, part of the a main exhibit then goes from uh, from late spring through the summer through early fall, usually around um, being taken down about at the end of October. Now this next year, starting in April 2015, the exhibit is going to be the making of a great humanitarian. Herbert Hoover in World War I. Now, there has been quite a few war anniversaries slipping by lately because most of our wars tend to be in the same part of the decade and spaced fairly evenly. So we were getting uh, this, this last half decade or so, we were getting Civil War anniversaries. We were getting the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812 thing. We were getting 50th year anniversaries for World War II. A lot of stuff and a lot less interest in it. Um, I don't quite know why, but a lot less interest in these anniversaries than the ones that were even 10 years ago. Because this all happens every so many years because the dates just correlate. World War I's are a little off. Instead of being in the first half of a decade, 1861, 1951, 1812, they were all in the sort of second half of the decade. So World War I starts 1914, United States gets in 1917, 
hopefully that these set of anniversaries will be taken on a little bit more um, will make a little bit more impact because I think World War One is a war that people don't know a lot about and considering how important it was to shaping what our country and what our Western culture is today, it really is an important era that people should learn more about. And I, frankly, am really looking forward to this exhibit. This will be the second time Hoover's done an exhibit on World War One, And people, I, I know, still talk about the trench uh, that they replica that they had built for that, and they are doing just i I just cannot wait to see what this exhibit is. I am just sure it's going to be incredibly impressive, and I am really looking forward to it. I should mention, of course, uh going back to why they had uh why they had to kind of dig up papers for the Hoover Presidential Library because they couldn't back those trucks up and load up the White House because time had gone on. This was being done, I mean, the the dedication was 62. That's a couple decades late to just back up to the White House. So they had to dig up collections of papers to, to build the Presidential Library collection. And, of course, you had Hoover's papers there. But they also started around to look for other papers to gather up and add to this collection. And one of those, uh, certainly not a uh, first thing that they looked for, but they found out that the Rose Wilder Lane papers are available. Roger Lee McBride had inherited the papers and uh, was looking for a place to house them and was originally considering putting them at the University of Virginia. But Rose Wilder Lane had been the first biographer of Herbert Hoover. Rose Wilder Lane's biographies, if you ever read the landmark books as a child, their biographies. I enjoy it, but if you take the intellectual rigor of the low end of some of the worst landmark uh, books and drop a little further, that's sort of where Rose's biographies were. And she, But she did write the first campaign biography, The Making of Herbert Hoover, it has passed out a copy right now, so you can buy a reprint version very easily from multiple sources online. Uh, and you can still occasionally find an original print of it. And since Rose had written this biography, they thought it would be good to get Rose's papers for the Presidential Library. They got it basically all lined up. They got out there and... Roger Lee McBride said, well, you need to take the Laura Ingalls. Laura Ingalls Wilder didn't have much at all to do with Herbert Hoover or anything. Uh, Rose had written this biography and had been involved in Republican politics out in California. And then later on through her life, through the libertarian movement and various things she'd done for that. So she had really, you could make an argument, a good connection to Hoover. Laura not so much. 
they're, I mean, she didn't know Hoover, she hadn't done any work with Hoover, anything like that. So they were like, eh, well, we'll, we'll take the Rose stuff and we'll be good. But uh, McBride told them that the things were just too interwoven. So they could take both or they could take neither. They ended up taking both. And uh, between what McBride gave them and other things that they were able to dig up other places, and they really did um, just... Just terrific work digging things up. I'll tell you, when I was going through the Rose uh, papers, making copies and making little notes to myself, I'd say to them, they have this, I should check at this other archive to see what they had. And lo and behold, half the time, the by the time I reached the end of the folder or in the next folder, they had already checked with the other archive I'd thought about and had copies of it right there. So... Uh, really is well done. It ended up being 13 boxes of materials. Uh, there, That is just the papers. There are also photographs, videos, and various other things that you have to ask because they are not in the finding aid. But the 13 boxes finding aid is available on their website and you can look it up and see what they have available. Uh, also, after you finished his book, Ghost in the Little House, the uh, biographer of Rose Wilder Lane has basically said he was out of the Rose business. And so he dedicated, he um, donated Rose Research Collection to Hoover as well. So there's another 10 boxes that he has that it doesn't really refer you to those from the finding aid for the Rose uh, papers. But so you know that it's out there. And I was going to talk more about what you could do in terms of in terms of uh, the traveling, but it looks like we're about out of time just from talking about the history aspect. But let me just briefly tell you: if you do want to visit the uh, to look at the Laura papers and the Rose papers, um, it's about a half a page form you have to fill out, you have to provide a picture ID, you have to let them know you're coming the first time uh, so you can set up and you have to let them know. It's always a good idea to let them know before you come because that way they won't have two people scheduled at the same day for using the same papers. The um, they, place does close up at lunch, which is important to know because you have to go and find lunch someplace then and in the town of West Branch there is a uh, restaurant the Presidential Motor Inn or something like that that's on the other side of the interstate from the main thing of town and it's really the only only place that's really listed right in West Branch however if you go up the road three exits which really isn't all that far in the interstate you will be on a trip with a whole bunch of choices for hotels, for restaurants, for everything. Not, it isn't close enough that you'd want to run there for lunch, but if you're looking for a place to stay, you can sure look at Iowa City, Coralville. It is within very close driving uh, capabilities. There are even you know restaurants and um, two hotels right on the third exit coming from 
yeah, on the third exit coming from is there's some, and then if you go one more exit to the fourth, there's there's a lot more. So basically, if you're looking for a place to stay, look in Iowa City, look in uh, Coralville, in addition to what's in West Branch. Now there are restaurants in West Branch. There is Herb and Luke's Pizza, which has other stuff. It's sort of a neighborhood corner type restaurant. I really like that one. There's also a very good, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Agave, Agave, something like that. Mexican restaurant in town. Very, very well done. I like that. There's also a coffee shop, Reed's Coffee, and a McDonald's, again, on the other side of the interstate. And there's, you know, like a little deli in the grocery store, all sorts of different places to eat like that. And the last of the uh, Hoover trio of organizations that I mentioned were in West Branch is the Hoover Association, which is where you can have a membership where they tell you a little bit more about what's going on in Hoover and donates money towards things like putting on the exhibits and uh, helping with the preservation and special programs at uh, both Hoover sites. So it really is a phenomenal little town in West Branch. It's got a lot of stuff because of Herbert Hoover. It's got a lot of other Quaker-related things. For example, uh, there's a farm there where John Brown trained troops before heading to Harper's Ferry. Uh, Richard Nixon, whose family was also a Quaker, his grandmother's farm is not very far outside of West Branch. There is a boarding school there, the Scattergood School, which is has a very good national reputation and, in fact, took in immigrants um, and refugees during World War One or during World War Two. There's all sorts of interesting things to see you do in West Branch. The Hoover West Branch history is, I think, pretty impressive enough, and. Considering I mixed in the history and the travel stuff, I hope that everybody enjoyed it and learned a little bit. And I will see you one more time this year. And hopefully we will have a great 2015. And I will see you next time here on Trundle Bed Tales. <laughs>